This morning, our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Uh, we have asked, and this is very special for me getting to work with the students here, we've asked uh, Jana Long to come and, and read this morning's scripture. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And of the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was also called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, Monday night uh, was a big night for me, and uh, you may say, well, why, Bill? Why was Monday night such a big night? Um, it wasn't the football game. Uh, I'm not really a big football fan, so it wasn't, wasn't the game. Actually, it was something much bigger uh, than, than a football game, something much more epic uh, than a football game. Um, Monday night was the night that I was finally able to watch the, the new tease trailer for the Star Wars uh, film that's coming out, um, The Force Awakens. And, and can I just say, wow, um, it looks amazing. I mean, everything that uh, I, I was hoping for in the next Star Wars film uh, looks awesome. And and those of you who know me, uh, you know that I love Star Wars, and uh, it's it's a great story. Star Wars is a great story. Um, It's an impossible story. And, uh, and I mean, just, just last week, uh, really, I mean, as a kid, when I was playing with my Star Wars action figures, um, I, I, really, I longed to be able to use the Force, right? I mean, to be able to move something, um, to long for the story to be true. And, and, and maybe Star Wars isn't your thing, um, but don't you wish that the impossible, that the, the, the fantastic, the, the riveting, the amazing, the wonderful, don't you wish it was true? And we, as people, we love impossible stories, don't, don't we? I mean, who of us hasn't read the Harry Potter books and thought, man, I wish Hogwarts were a real place? Or Narnia, and wish, man, I wish I could go through the wardrobe who doesn't like the idea of Batman protecting Gotham or of the arrow defending Starling City? And we love impossible stories, but, but they're just that, right? I mean, they're impossible. They're, they're fiction. They aren't real. So, so why do we love these impossible stories so much? Why don't we just discount them and, and sort of despise them because they're, they're fake? Well, I think it's because there is one impossible story that we were created for that actually is true. And if you're a cynic, maybe you prefer to think of it as the other way around, that, that we created an impossible story to believe in because we love impossible stories. This is what's known as sort of the, the Freud Frauerbach objection to religion, the, the idea that, that religion is just a, a wish fulfillment, that we just want it to be true and so we believe that it's true. 
But the thing is, is that objection cuts both ways, right? Because those who would disbelieve God, couldn't it just as easily be that, that they disbelieve God because they don't want it to be true? This is the age we live in, though. And, and, and I get it. I mean, I love things with clear explanations, rational, simple, scientific. I love that. And, and actually, I'm really deeply skeptical. Sometimes it annoys Rachel. Um, especially of things that seem too good to be true. And, and I probably get way too much satisfaction uh, replying to a, an email that was forwarded to me with the Snopes link that, that says, that disproves, you know, the, the, you know, you get these email forwards with all kind of crazy stuff and you go to Snopes.com and look it up. And I, I probably get way too much satisfaction of replying back with, with just the link. Um, something I need to probably work on in my character. And, and, and this, is, this is the age we live in, what, what Charles Taylor calls the secular age. It, it, the shift to the secular age, Taylor explains, is a move from a society where we believe in God and where that's unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to a society in which it's understood that belief in God is one option among many and it's frequently not the easiest. So in this way, secularity has, has less to do with, with what people believe. Because actually in secular culture, it's not that people believe in God less. It has less to do with what people believe and what is to, than it does to with what is considered believable. Less to do with what people believe and more to do with what is considered believable, with what's plausible. And so when we come to Luke chapters 1 and 2 with, with its virgin births, its angels, it's a lot easier to place it in the category of Star Wars and Hogwarts than it is to place it in the realm of history. But there is a difference between those impossible stories and this impossible story. And that is that this one claims to be true. And not just sort of in the vague way that all religions sort of claim to be true. This one claims to be historical grounded in actual events, studied with research, eyewitnesses, personal interviews. Luke, who wrote these accounts, was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, so he's actually coming to a faith tradition that's outside of his own. He was educated, so he's an unlikely candidate for belief in Jesus. Luke, who's writing this, he would have been skeptical. And yet he's convinced. And sure, this happened a long time ago, but Luke writes... And he writes, intending for us to believe him, that these are actual accounts of real historical events. And this is clear in verses 1 through 4 that, that Paul walked us through last week, if you were here. Luke is writing the historical narrative of what happened among them, he says. He's recording an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony. And this is important to keep in mind because I think when we come to the Bible, oftentimes we can come to this book and, and either think, oh, this is just a book full of legends and stories with no real basis in history. Or, <laughs> on the other side, we can come to it and think that, that this is just a book that appeared from heaven, bound in leather, printed in English. Um, and, and neither one of those views is helpful. And, and whether you believe it or not, this book, it, it attempts to be a work of history. And if we take it for the kind of literature that it claims to be, we have to at least start there, even if we're skeptical of it. So during this Advent season, we're looking together at Luke chapters 1 and 2 and pondering the question, what a strange way, 
What a strange way to save the world. I mean, why in the world would God choose to come to the world as a poor, helpless, colonized child, born in extremely risky conditions? What a strange, impossible, wonderful way to save the world. But I think sometimes we miss the strangeness. We miss the wonder of it uh, because either we come to the text so skeptical of the events or because we come to it so familiar with the events. And if I'm honest, I, I, I probably struggle with both. I, I'm so familiar with this and there's also part of me that's still skeptical. Like, man, really? A, a virgin birth? The angel? But I want us to try to get past both our skepticism and our familiarity and really hear these texts afresh, to hear them anew. And as we look at this passage this morning, imagine Mary sitting down with Luke. He's putting together his orderly account. Imagine Mary sitting down with Luke for an interview. Sitting there at a, reclining at a table or at a cafe. He's working on this account. He's tracking down all the eyewitnesses he can. And you can imagine him meeting up with Mary to talk about her experience. What would that moment been like? You can see Luke asking Mary the question. Mary, Mary, if there's one thing that you want people to remember about your part of the story, what would it be? Imagine Mary kind of pondering for a moment and saying, Luke, I'm glad you asked. I, I think if there's one thing It would be that God loves the impossible. As I reflect on my story, I think that the one thing I'd want to leave people with is that that God loves the impossible. God loves the impossible. And and we see this over and over again in Mary's story. We we, we see that God picks impossible people, that, that he prefers, in fact, impossible methods at times. And then he pursues impossible faith. And as we walk through this, this text this morning, I want to see all, all three of those. That, that God picks impossible people, he prefers impossible methods, and that he pursues impossible faith. So next you can see Luke sitting there and saying, so Mary, why you? Why you, Mary? Actually, I wonder how often she got that question. You just imagine Mary all these years Mary, why did, why did God pick you to carry his son? I think the simple answer is because God picks impossible people. In verses 26 and 27, Luke introduces us to this impossible person of Mary. He writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Galilee, to a city of Galilee named, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And you can just imagine Mary recounting that moment to Luke. (laughs) Luke's sitting there saying, reflecting back on that moment, Mary, what was it like when you first found out? You can see her saying, well, I was young. I was really young. I mean, Mary was probably a teenager. And Joseph and I were just engaged. And we were looking forward to the wedding. It was, you know, a little ways off. But we, we were just so excited. But we had no idea what was coming, Luke. I was home one morning, the house working, when the angel showed up. And, and of course, Luke, you know, I mean, I knew about angels from the synagogue, but, but I never thought I'd see one. It never crossed my mind. But there he was, Gabriel, speaking to me. 
It's hard, Luke, even now for me to believe that it happened even after all these years, but, but it did. Mary, what did the angel say to you? Well, Luke, I'll never forget it. He told me not to be afraid. I, I guess it looked like I was pretty scared. And then he said to me, Mary of Nazareth, he said, I, I had found favor with God. Can you believe it, Luke, that me, Mary, had found favor with God? But then came the real shocker. He said that, that I, an unmarried virgin, was going to get pregnant and have a son. I was going to call him Jesus. And, and he said this baby boy that I was going to carry would be called the son of God, that, that he would inherit Joseph's ancestor, King David, his, his throne, that this baby would be a king and his kingdom would have never-ending never as to it. You know, I, I still marvel, Luke, at why God chose me for this. But this is what has convinced me that God chooses impossible people. So what made Mary such an impossible person? What made her such an unlikely person? Well, well first she's from Nazareth. <laughs> and if you read the Gospels, you realize the reputation of Nazareth was not good. When people found out that Jesus was from there, was from there they said, what, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was a poor agricultural settlement. It wasn't the center of, of culture or politics. I mean, it wasn't the center of anything, actually. I mean, it was on the margin of everything, and Mary was a woman in a culture where women had no rights. And on top of that, she was poor. And now she's going to be poor and pregnant and unmarried, which would have been a huge deal in that culture. It would have been a stigma that she would have never been able to shake for her entire life. And you can imagine, no matter how many times over her life she tried to explain to her parents, her neighbors, the response is always like, sure, Mary. An angel, yeah. Now, now, for those with a Catholic background this morning, you might be thinking, now, Bill, now take it easy on, on Mary here. Um, she is the mother of God. And, and let me just affirm that our admiration of Mary is a good thing. I mean, she was an incredibly faithful woman who sacrificed so much to play an incredible role in God's plan. But the, the Catholic doctrine of her immaculate conception is really a very recent development, even in, in the Catholic Church. I mean, for the first 1,800 years, the, the Catholic Church didn't hold that to be the case. It wasn't until 1854 when Pope Pius declared that um, she had been immaculately conceived. And so it's key that when we admire Mary, that we admire because of her response, not because of her birth. She was an ordinary but faithful young woman. And we learn in verse 47 that, that even she needed a savior. See, God picks impossible people. He always has. I love this. As one scholar put it, God may be God of the universe, but he's no elitist. God may be the God of the universe, but he's no elitist. God picks barren women in a society where fertility was everything. God picks the younger brother in a culture where being the firstborn was everything. I mean, this happens with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, with David. David, the king mentioned here in this passage, Israel's greatest king. He was the youngest brother. He was the smallest. 
He was out taking care of sheep when the prophet came to anoint him. That was one of the lowliest jobs. And yet, God chose him to be the greatest king Israel had had. And not only does God choose David, he keeps choosing David. He forgives him even after he commits adultery and murder. David was an impossible When I think about this passage, I realize, I mean, I'm an impossible. God picked me, a a geeky, Star Wars-loving homeschool kid, to be your pastor, to be a leader in the church, and and not only that, to get to be a part of starting two churches, two campuses. I said, I would never be a church planner. And if you know me, that's it. I mean, trust me, that's an impossibility. So a key question for us this morning, for each of us is to consider, is that, that if you aren't one of the impossibles, what hope do you have? If you aren't one of the impossibles, what hope do you have? Because here's the thing, if you think that you're a likely candidate for God's grace, you're the last person he picks. The people who have it all together, who think they have something to offer, who are successful, who have kept all the rules who are religious, and that's most of us here. I mean, when I look out at this room, most of you have your lives together. That's great. But until you begin to see yourself as one of the impossibles, there's no hope. Because if, if you aren't surprised that God would save you, then you probably haven't really met him. Because Jesus is constantly hanging out with those who know they don't have it all together. He's constantly teaching his followers to take the position of a servant, to sit at the least important seat at the table. And one of the marks of, of true Christians is that they never get over their salvation. They, they never get over it. They're continually amazed that God would save someone like me. The other question is, is who are the impossibles in our lives? And and are we identifying with them? Are we going after them? Are we spending time with them? Loving them as Christ loved us? And who's the unpopular, the unliked kid at school? Who's the family or or coworker who's struggling or in need? And and I don't know what it looks like to, to identify with them in your context, in your life, but and maybe it's getting involved at Satchel Page Elementary. Maybe it's, it's reaching out to that kid and sitting with them at the lunch table. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've come in and it's been a hard week. So maybe it's been a hard month. It's been a hard year. A hard life. And you feel like you're one of the impossibles. There's good news. There's good news because God picks impossible people. Maybe you feel like God couldn't use me. There's good news because God picks the people that most of the people don't think he could use. 
I'm reminded of this every, every year about this time because it's December, right? And this is the time when all the lists are going to start coming out, right? The top 10 news stories, the top 10 books, top 10 songs. This, this is the time we look back on the year. And it always causes me to kind of reflect back on, on my life over the last year too. And it's like, man, it's always kind of depressing. Okay, another year has gone by and it's like, I'm still dealing with these same habits and patterns. And I thought, oh, this was the year when I was really going to get consistent with that workout routine. And I mean, it's like, how are those New Year's resolutions working out for you now in December 7th here, right? I'm, I'm sure we're all going to do much better uh, next year. Um, but this is, it's like, gosh, like, God, I'm an impossible one. I feel it every year at this time. But the good news is that God picks impossible people. He picks people like you and me. Okay, so now turning back to, to Luke's interview with Mary, you can see him saying, so, so Mary, the angel came to you, the, the most unlikely candidate. It, it seemed impossible he would choose you, but he does. He picks impossible people, but, but how did it actually happen? And this is where we see that God actually prefers impossible methods now, let me say here before we go into this too deeply, God actually works most of the time in really ordinary ways. I mean, think about it. When you go home and eat lunch today, I mean, how has God provided that for you? Well, in really ordinary ways, right? I mean, he provides sun and rain that grows plants that become the food and the animals that you eat. And he uses lots of people, farmers, ranchers, truck drivers, grocery store clerks to bring us to that. I mean, that God is providing through you, but in really ordinary ways, right? So, God works extravagantly through ordinary ways. And yet, in these big moments of redemptive history, he is the king of extravagance. And he uses the impossible ways, right, that, that are unmistakably him. I mean, he parts the Red Sea to rescue his people as they're fleeing from Egypt. He chooses barren women time after time again in the story to bear children of promise. He chooses a virgin. So Mary, how did it happen? That's a great question, Luke. You can see her responding. Like, that's what I wanted to know. I mean, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. I'm thinking, you know, did Gabriel miss health class? I mean, how is this going to work? And that's what I asked Gabriel that day. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And Luke, this is what he said to me. He said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and, is, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Luke, those were the words that really stuck with me that day. Nothing will be impossible with God. And you know, Luke, especially in those first months of the pregnancy, when I, when I wasn't really showing yet, when I still wasn't sure if the whole thing had been a dream, I just kept remembering, nothing is impossible with God. You see, God prefers impossible methods. The parting of the Red Sea. I mean, later in the story, right, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, he has his people march around the city for seven days and then blow horns and the walls fall down. I mean, impossible methods. I love this story in the book of Judges where you have Gideon, one of, one of the judges in the book, and there's a people that are oppressing God's people and 
they pull together the army and they're going to go out and fight. And God sends most of the army away. And he just sends like 300 of them out against an army of thousands. And they triumph. God loves impossible methods. You keep going a little further in the story. David and Goliath, right? I mean, you have this shepherd boy up against Andre the giant with a massive spear and all he's got is a slingshot. God prefers impossible methods. And if God is real and he's active in our world, then nothing is impossible for him. Which really brings us to the second key question here, which is, look, if you can't trust God with the impossible, who can you trust? What are the things in your life that maybe you haven't consciously had this thought, or maybe you have, but that you just said, this is really too big for God to handle? I think sometimes we prefer, when we pray, to, to throw God sort of an underhanded pitch, right? Something he can really easily hit. So the question is, are our hopes really big enough? And, and I'm not talking about pie in the sky here, God, get me a new Mercedes. You know, not, and not that he guarantees how he's going to respond to our requests. But do you expect big things from him? I'm often reminded that the size of our prayers are often correlated to the size of our view of God. The more we magnify the Lord, as Mary does in her song, the more we magnify and the greater we esteem in our lives, our prayers begin to grow. But for so many of us, me included, we prefer to handle things on our own, don't we? And I was thinking this week, why is that? Why do I want to do it on my own? And, and I think it's deep down because we don't want to be in anyone's debt. We don't want to owe anyone anything. You know, if, if we have to ask for help, then now all of a sudden we've shown that we are weak and, and now we feel like we're in debt to the person who's helping us. In fact, after we receive help, how often do we say things like, well, let me know if there's anything I can do to help you sometime? Which is really our way of saying, please let me pay you back for this. We want to be our own saviors. We don't want to owe anyone anything. We don't want to be obligated to anyone. But, but here's the thing. We were created to be in a life-giving relationship of dependency on the God of the universe. But our desire for autonomy, for freedom, enslaves us to loneliness and isolation. If you can't trust God with the impossible... Who can you trust? Now back to the interview. So Luke says, you know, Mary, how did you respond to Gabriel's declaration that nothing is impossible with God? I mean, that's huge. How did you respond in that moment? I mean, Luke, what could I do? God's messenger had spoken to me. I, I knew this wasn't a dream or a vision. This was, was God. I mean, it was just different. I, I knew I wasn't dreaming. I just said what was in my heart. I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said come true about me. What did you do after that, Mary? 
Well, I, I went to visit my relative, uh, Elizabeth. The angel told me about how she was pregnant and going to bear a son also. And, and it was crazy. It, when I arrived at the house, the baby, her baby started kicking like crazy. And we hugged and we laughed and we sang together. How in the world had God chosen us? Two unlikely women. You see, God pursues impossible faith. I mean, imagine Mary's faith as she waited all this time. Remember, this is, this is first century Nazareth. I mean, there was no CVS on the corner where she could go pick up an early pregnancy test. There, there was no OBGYN to, to do a blood test. And sure, she was late, but yeah, she felt a little sick in the morning. But it would be months before she would know for sure, right? If, if what the angel had said was, was really happening to her. And if you think out a bit further in the story, how long she had to wait to see if the promise about Jesus' would come true. I mean, it was three decades before Jesus would do his first miracle, before he'd ever preach a sermon. And yet her impossible faith yields joy and worship and thanksgiving and celebration. This is the difference between Zachariah and Mary in their encounters with Gabriel. If you were with us last week, Zechariah also had an encounter with Gabriel. And both Mary and Zechariah ask follow-up questions. But after Zechariah asked his question, he ended up not being able to speak for nine months until Elizabeth gave birth. But, but Mary also asks a question, um, but she gets an explanation and she's honored. So what's the difference? Well, as Paul pointed out last week, Zechariah knew his Bible. He was a priest And if he knew his Bible, he knew there was a precedent for women beyond childbearing years conceiving and having children. Zechariah had heard lots of stories from the Old Testament of this kind of thing happening. But for Mary, a virgin, there's there's no precedent for that. I mean, maybe some prediction and foreshadowing in the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 7, but But this was really new. And you see, it wasn't her behavior or any specific action that sets her apart. It was her faith and her faithfulness. In verse 45, Elizabeth says, she's blessed for believing. She's blessed for believing. Not just because she would bear this child. Her belief is what sets her apart. God pursues impossible faith. You see, life with God is always a life of faith. But I think sometimes we can get confused about what is faith really? I mean, is faith just sort of blindly trusting without any kind of evidence or just sort of having a feeling and just trusting vaguely into some spiritual reality out there? No, in in the Bible, faith is always a response. Faith is always a response. Faith is a response to what God has done, to how he has acted. God acts, he reveals, he creates, he speaks. And then he looks for those who respond to him, even when it doesn't make sense, even when there isn't a precedent. Faith is fundamentally a response Life with God is always a life of faith, a life of responding to him, of taking the next 
obedient step, even when you're not really sure if there's going to be something there when your foot comes down. Someone once said that, that faith is one foot on the ground, one foot in the air, and a pit in your stomach. Which leads us to another key question. If your life doesn't require faith, who are you really following? If your life doesn't require faith, who are you really following? I mean, the story that we're reading this morning, it's about Mary. It's Mary's story. It's her eyewitness account. But, but really, this is a story for all of us. It causes us to ask the question, do I trust God with an impossible faith? What can I point to in my life? What can you point to in your life and say, this I do out of obedience and faith? Is there something in your life you say, the, the only reason, I, the only way to make sense of the fact that I'm doing this is because I'm obeying Christ in faith. I think the reality is I, I'm not sure that much of my life really requires that much faith. It's probably true for most of us. I mean, do your desires for your life, your heart really require faith? I mean, for me, so often, my, my highest dream and goal is, is just to live a decent, comfortable life. I want healthy, well-adjusted kids in a healthy, well-adjusted neighborhood. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But to raise faithful, Christ-pursuing kids, now that requires impossible faith. What about your work? How much faith in your job your finances, your friendships, your sex life? What about your church, your community group? Does your engagement in your neighborhood require faith? How about your hopes for the world? Do we really want to live such mediocre lives? Author Donald Miller wrote a book a few years back called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And he writes these poignant and piercing words in that book. He says, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or, or go home and put on a record so you could think about the story you had seen. No, he says, the truth is you wouldn't remember that movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. Ouch. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting a Volvo. I mean, I want a Volvo. Uh, a Volvo wagon, really, that's like the next best thing to the Millennium Falcon, in my mind. Um, <laughs> but is that the measure of my life? Is that really my highest goal? I pray it wouldn't be for me. And I pray it wouldn't be for you either. We were made for so much more. And, and so let me challenge you, let me challenge me to do something that requires a response of faith. Maybe it's having a difficult conversation. Maybe it's asking someone for forgiveness. 
Maybe it's taking the, the step of, of making margin in your budget so that you can give generously. Maybe it's inviting a, a neighbor who you've lived across the street for from years but never really gotten to know. Maybe it's inviting them over to dinner. Ask God to show you. Listen to him nudging you forward in faith. And I would suspect for some of you right now that you, you know what that thing is, that God has been pressing that on your heart for a while, and in this moment, it popped right into your mind. You know what it is. And for others of you, you just need a minute to ponder. So I'd love you to take even out the note sheet that you're handing the way in, and just take a minute. And, and if you know what that thing is, just jot it down on that note sheet. What is the thing you, you think God might be calling me to do? Stepping out in faith. It's probably going to cost you something that it almost always does. It's almost never easy. Just jot it down. Pray about it. Talk with someone about it. And then step out of an impossible faith. And watch what God does. Where would Mary's faith take her in the end? Bring her both suffering and joy. Just, you know, 30 years, 35 years after she has this encounter with Gabriel, she's going to be standing on a hill watching her son be crucified. Imagine that. Mary's faith would lead her to bear the Savior that would die for her. Mary's road wasn't easy. The road of impossible faith never is. But it is glorious because God loves the impossible. I mean, what could seem more impossible than this story? Could there be a stranger way for God to save the world? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have...